Amen? Amen. Uh, that's a very bad week. Amen. He will hold me fast. Amen. Oh, I'm just going to give up while it's ahead. <laughs> yes, he will hold us fast. My message is running the race of faith. And if you take your Bible right now and open to Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look at the first three verses. And I'll let you sit because you've been standing so much and I don't want to make you angry at me. You don't know me that well. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Running the race of faith. After list, listing all the great heroes of the faith in chapter 11, he now turns to the greatest hero of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great one to teach us about faith and endurance. And so now he begins with runners of the past. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, again, this cloud of witnesses, the word cloud, is a metaphor for a great throng of people. We have all around us this cloud of witnesses that testify to running the race by faith and enduring the race. It's very interesting when you come to the Bible, much of the teaching of the Bible is through biography. That's what he's saying here. Look at the biographies of all these wonderful saints. Why, they're all around you. They surround you. They have run the race. Look to them. If you go to the Old Testament, there are 66 chapters just on the life of David. The first five books of the Bible are filled with the biographies of Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, much of it of Moses. Later in the prophets, you have Daniel, Jeremiah. Come to the New Testament, four Gospels of the life of Christ. Come to Acts, Peter, Paul. God teaches us through biography. He teaches us through the lives of other people who have gone before us. I was saved at a Bible camp. I think that was just mentioned. And um, at that Bible camp, I, I spent every summer, all my teen years, from 14 on, working at that camp. We had a wonderful camp director. And every summer, we would have to read a biography. So you're 14 years old, you're bouncing off of walls, you've got more energy, you know what to do with, you're idealistic, you almost know everything. And I had to read Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. You know, I was really never the same after that. It set an image in front of me. This is what a Christian is. This is what a Christian does. It was a cloud of witnesses. And the next summer, the life of George Mueller. The life of George Mueller has impacted millions of people, millions. Next year, Robert Chapman, who we have out here for you to read. 
Biographies change lives. Now, I just want for a moment to talk to dads and moms for a moment. Dads and moms, one of the best things you can do for your children and your teenagers is as a family, read some biographies. And there's so many wonderful, excellent children biographies today. So I want to encourage you, teach your children through the lives of the great cloud of witnesses that surround us. Now, the other major point here is that we're not alone. We haven't walked this path. We haven't run this path alone. Many have gone before us. Eric Sauer says, always, at all times, there have been heroes of the faith. Now, he's thinking of the Old Testament great heroes of the faith, but we have to add the New Testament heroes of the faith, and we have to add for 2,000 years, there have been many heroes of the faith, men and women. We need to get to know them. That's what he says here, runners of the past. Now he turns to runners of the present, which is us. He says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this writer, like the Apostle Paul, loves the race metaphor, a marathon commitment to Christ. Now, I want you to look very carefully at what he says here. The race that is set before us. Did you see that? I want you to notice. It's a race that God has set before us. It's a course. He's laid out the course. And our job is to run the course. And if you're in a race, a marathon, a cross-country race, the first thing, the first rule is finish the race. You don't have to win, but you have to finish the race. So we're all runners. I know what you're thinking. I'm 65. I'm retired. You're a runner. You say, I'm, I'm 75 years of age. You're a runner. You're 90 years old. You're a runner in a race. You're in a hospital bed. You're a runner in a race. Or like we had this morning, we had some brothers here in wheelchairs. They're runners in a race. God has laid the race out before them. And there's no excuses, I'm 90, I'm 80. I have a dear friend, 103, he's running hard the race. In fact, he was teaching seniors in our church, and uh, he said to the elders recently, he said, you know, I think I'm getting a little too old for this. I'd like you to get a younger man to teach the seniors, someone around 90. <laughs> said, we'll try to find someone 90. We're in a race. It's a God-appointed race. The race starts the moment you're born again, and it concludes when you take that last breath. You're a runner. It's God's race. It's your life. Well, if this race is so important, how do we run it? That's what he's going to tell us, how to run the race. The first thing he says is run unencumbered. Lay aside every weight. Now, to win the race, to be victorious, one has to lay aside anything that would impede the race or bog the race down. Now, if, if I were to run a race, I'm not ready to run a race right now uh, because, well, look at these beautiful shoes I have. You see those shoes? Those are nice shoes. Those are my Sunday shoes. I only wear them on Sunday. They last years that way. If you want to come up and see them later, you can. But you do not run with shoes. And then I've got this nice tie. Did you see this tie? It's all sheep. Did you see it? 
It's a sheep tie. Reminds me that you're sheep. But I'm one too. Well, this is a very nice tie, and it's a lovely shirt, and this is a very modern. This is not an old man's jacket. This is a very modern jacket, if you don't know that. Look at how the pockets are really cool. You don't run in a race with a jacket like this in a tie and shoes. What do you do? You take them off. You strip them off, and you put on very light sneakers and very light clothes. Do you know that, like in the Tour de Force, one extra pound can cause you to lose, lose the race 30 days, seven days a week. So he's giving us very good advice. Whatever is hindering you in the race of the Christian life, strip it off. Take it off. Often young people come to us with the do's and the don'ts. Can I do this? Am I not to do that? Can I drink alcohol? Or can I go to R-rated movies? Can I go to Las Vegas if I only spend a dollar? What about clothes? What about friends, music, entertainment, sports, certain habits? They have all these questions. Most of these things we have perfect liberty to do. And that's what a weight is. A weight is not sin. A weight is a liberty. It's something neutral. 1 Corinthians 10.23 says, All things are lawful. There's a lot of liberty in the Christian life. In fact, there's so much liberty in the Christian life, we usually make up a bunch of rules so we feel more religious. But not all things build up. Yes, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. That's what he's talking about. Liberties, freedoms. Now, I can't answer this for you. Only you personally can answer. What is it in your life that is holding you up in the Christian race? You're not reading your Bible. You're not serving. You're not going forward. You're not in the race, really. What is it? That's a weight. You have to decide that before the Lord and talk to the Lord about what is it. It may be something perfectly good, not a sin, a liberty you have in Christ, but it's impeding the race. And it's impeding your walk with God. Identify it. And deal with it. Now, the second thing he says here is lay aside every sin which clings so closely. Now, we're not talking about liberty. We're talking about sin. No question about this. But he says a very interesting thing about sin, which clings so closely. Sin wishes cunningly to encompass you, to lay siege upon you, to attack you from every side. It entangles you. That's the nature of sin. It, it impedes the race. Sin will bog you down because it wraps itself around you. So in Denver, we had this man, who was actually very well known. He was uh, invited to parties, and he would bring a 25-foot ball constrictor over 200 pounds. This is no little garter snake. And he would go to parties, and at these parties, everyone would line up. They all put their hands out. <laughs> Not me. And uh, especially by the head. And uh, they put their hands out, and they put the snake on all the people's hand. They take all these pictures. They take this snake. It's literally that thick. Put it around people's necks. Take pictures. So we read in the paper that he took that big snake, and he put it around his neck. It curled around him. Boom! Just like that killed him. Instantly killed him. Well, it's a snake! You don't put snakes like that around your neck. But that's what sin's like. You play with sin, you lose. 
Every time. Imagine being part of a team, and every time you play, you lose. You're, you're guaranteed to lose. It wouldn't be a fun team to be on, but that's what sin is like. You lose every time. It's like the law of gravity. If I were to take my pen now and drop my pen, every single time it will fall to the ground. Every single time. That's what sin's like. Sin will wrap itself around you and conquer you. You will not be triumphant in the Christian life. The world, the flesh, the devil are all against us. Demonic hosts are against us. Sin blocks the way. Now, the Lord Jesus gave us some very good advice. He called it the principle of amputation. If your hand offend you, causing you to sin, if your eye offend you, causing you to sin, well, then cut it off. Now, he didn't mean literally cut your hand off because you got another hand or you got your brain. Think about the same thing. What he means is cut that off. Don't fool with it. Don't play with it because sin wraps itself around you. You play with alcohol, you will lose. You play with pornography, you will lose. It's the way God has created the universe. It's just like the law of gravity. It's the moral law. So in running this race, deal with sin. Confess it. Don't play with it. Don't think it's a secret little thing you're getting away with because you're not. Amputate it. Then he says, run with endurance. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, this is the big point. The whole book is dealing with the Christian life going forward, enduring. Because some of these Christians were going backward. Some of them were not even going to church anymore. Some of them were going back to Judaism. And the point is endurance. Go forward. Hebrews 10, 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. So that's like the big theme of this book and of our passage, endurance. And this means sustained effort, just like if you were in a cross-country race. Not a sprint. You have to Exert effort. There's something that really, really encourages me. And it's when I see people, maybe 60 years old, 70 years old, 80, not, like my dear friend is 103, still pressing forward, pressing forward, going forward, serving the Lord, busy for the Lord, learning, going to conferences, listening to, to messages. E. Stanley Jones was a Methodist miss, uh, missionary in India 50 years. So at the end of his life, he was writing his biography. And I want to read this statement. He speaks of his uh, view of his Christian life at 83 years of age. There are scars on my faith, but underneath those scars, there are no doubts. Christ has me with the consent of all my being and with the cooperation of my entire life. The song I sing is a light song, not the temporary exuberance of youth that often fades when middle or old age sets in with their disillusionment and cynicism. Now listen to this. No, I am 83 years old, and I am more excited today about being a Christian than when I was 18 at when I first put my feet upon the way. I'm 83 years of age, and I'm more excited about being a Christian than 18. Normally, it's the reverse. People are excited about being a Christian at 18, 20. They get older, cynicism, 
disillusionment, problems, depression, they back off. He's more excited today. That's very encouraging to me, to see these saints. Well, it's the cloud of saints. They've gone before us, and they've endured. It's a very interesting story um, told of uh, Yusei Bolt, a, a famous Olympic sprinter, and about a problem he had. And I'm going to read this to you. In his zeal to get a quick start, sometimes Bolt started too early and was disqualified from different races. After winning three gold medals at the 2012 Olympics, Bolt was asked what advice his coach had offered to him. My coach said, don't worry about the start. The strongest part of my race is the end, so don't worry about getting a fast start. In a sense, the Christian life is not just about a quick start, a rocket ship going up. It's about endurance. And if a Christian endures, the end will be much better than the beginning. You'll be mature. You'll be experienced. You'll have advice for people. You'll be an example. You'll be a model. You'll be one of those witnesses that we're all to look to. Do not use that excuse, I'm 65, I'm retired. Retirement means I can focus in other things that I was not able to do before. I can serve the Lord in a whole new way. Have the vision to press forward. As life goes on, press forward. Now run with aim. Run with aim. 12-2. Some translations say, fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ is the supreme example of endurance. So we're going to talk in a moment about how you fix your eyes on Jesus. I don't want to just make some mumble-jumbo um, religious empty words. There's specific ways we can fix our gaze on Christ, our example. But I want you to listen to what Eric Sauer says. If you wish to be disappointed... Look upon others. If you wish to be downhearted, well, look at yourself. But if you wish to be encouraged and to experience victory, look upon Jesus Christ. All depends on how one looks at life. He who would live aright must see aright. In the arena of faith, look to Jesus. Now, sociologists tell us that we are in the age of distraction. Never in human history has there been so many distractions available to us. We've got TV, we've got movies, we have internet, magazines, and books, and sports, and games, and endless, endless entertainment. And that's not an exaggeration. All these companies boast of millions of wonderful movies that are available to you. Get to it. It'll take the rest of your life to see them all. The Christian is to look to Jesus. <laughs> Fix his eyes on the work of God. Because we're running the race. It was set out before us by God. Now he says Jesus is the founder of the faith principle. The originator, the pioneer, the forerunner, the champion... The son always trusted the father, even before this world. 
He originated the principle of faith, trust in God. So Jesus Christ is the greatest example of trust in God. He trusted his father. That's how he was able to endure the cross. He believed and trusted in God the Father. So he's the originator of the faith principle of life. But he's also the perfecter of the faith principle. His entire earthly life was the very embodiment of trusting God. He lived in total dependence upon the Father. It was his absolute faith in God that enabled him to go through the mocking and the crucifixion and the rejection and the desertion and left him yet with perfect faith. So, he's our example. Now, I want you to look carefully at what follows here because this is the main point. We're looking to Jesus. So, the first thing we see, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. There is no one here who has suffered like Jesus Christ. The cross was the lowest form of capital punishment, torture, and humiliation. By faith, he endured the cross. So if you think you've got problems, you think life is hard, he endured the cross. Just remember that. And he persevered, and he went forward. He ran the race that the Father had set out before him. Second thing is despising the shame. Thought nothing of it. To despise means to treat something of little value, to treat it as insignificant or of little consequence. One commentator writes this, they despised and scorned him, but he turned it all around and despised the scorn and the shame. Treated it as insignificant. How in the world did he do that? I'm going to show you just in a moment. It's right here in the text. As a result of going down to the lowest possible humiliation, the cross, he is seated at the right hand of God. The highest exaltation of anyone, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the result. And this is why I despise the shame. Now, this brings us to the key of this whole chapter. And we're going to camp on this right now. And it's the secret key to endurance. And here it is. Look at your Bible. For the joy that was set before him. There's the key right there. How did Jesus endure the cross? How did he live and put up with what people had done to him? How did he do it? For the joy set before him. In other words, when Jesus was upon the cross and God the Father put upon him all our sin and our judgment, he looked through it all and he saw what lay ahead for him, and that joy helped him to endure. What did he see? What did he anticipate? The coming joy, glorification of God the Father by his work on the cross. God would be highly exalted by his son's work. He would see multitudes of sons and daughters who would be one for eternity as a result of the cross. While he was on the cross, he saw you. He saw me. He saw our congregation this morning. He saw multitudes and multitudes of men and women, sons and daughters, that he would win for eternity, who would be like him for eternity. That was the joy set before him. Yes, it was horrible. Someone wrote, as he entered the somber valley of death, his gaze penetrated the darkness around him, and he saw already the light of the coming triumph. His own personal victory over Satan, sin, and death. 
He would triumph over them. His position as exalted Lord at the Father's right hand. The reconciliation of all things in Christ, Ephesians 1.10. All worlds in chaos, the universe is in chaos, but someday it will be brought under one head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all things will be reconciled. There's a great end to this story because of the cross, and he endured. The reunion, the homecoming, back in heaven, at the Father's right hand, the angels and multitudes singing and praising the Lord Jesus Christ. Let all the angels worship him. Ephesians, I mean, Hebrews chapter 1. Let all the angels worship him. That's the joy. He, he looked through the problems and the issues and the suffering and the, the, the torture, really. And for the joy of what he saw ahead, what he anticipated, he endured. Now let's apply this to ourselves now. Would you take your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 16 to 18. I want you to see this in your Bibles. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> verse 16 is my philosophy for aging. You can take it too. I didn't invent this. It's the Apostle Paul. So we do not lose heart. Now, if there is anyone who should lose heart, it's the Apostle Paul. This man had more problems than all of us in this auditorium together. Shipwrecked at sea, beaten, stoned, imprisoned, hated, chased. We do not lose heart. How do you do that? Well, here's how. Though the outward nature is wasting away. So if you're over 55, you got an idea of what he's talking about. You have new replacement, hip replacements, hearing aids, glasses, on and on until finally you fall apart and you die. <clears throat> the outward nature is wasting away. That's just a fact of life. My uh, father lived to be 95, and he lived in New Jersey. I lived in Colorado, and a couple times a year I'd have to go there and help him, and I love being there with him. And one day I come into his bedroom. My mom had been dead a number of years. And he's got all these pills and vitamins just lined up on his dresser. So I said to my dad, what are all these pills? He says, I don't know. I just take them. <laughs> then he told me a story. One of his friends, who was also a widower, he got so confused about all these pills that he put them all in a bowl and every day took a handful. <laughs> so my dad said, should I do that? I said, Dad, they're not M&Ms. I will help you figure this out. Yes, the outward self is wasting away. Don't you young people do that. Older people can do that. Now, this is why this is my philosophy for aging. Though our outward nature is wasting away, that's a fact, our inner nature is being renewed. Now, get this. Day by day. The spiritual man, the, the man in Christ, the conscious self who will live forever is having daily renewal. That's an amazing statement. That renewal is Christ-like renewal. Not your grouchy old self that you were, but the new man in Christ, like Christ, joyful, happy, gentle, 
Now, here's where we want to get to. I want you to look very carefully at this. This will help you throughout life. It will help you when those really terrible problems come. All right, for this slight, now each word's important. Each word's important. This slight momentary affliction. All right, look up here. Here's a scale. I wish I had a scale with me. Here's my one side of the scale. Earthly life, okay? Earthly life. It's the, the problems. Slight. At the moment, it doesn't seem slight. Momentary affliction, all right, over here, you're watching me, is preparing for us, now look over here, an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. You can't compare them. Whatever problems you have in this life, they will only be momentary and they will be slight in comparison to the eternal weight of glory. Now, this is looking through the problems to the joy set before us. This is what Jesus did. This is what we're to do. We're to look at life with divine perspective. The problems now, the issues now, which can be very severe, they can be life-threatening, they could be something you never dreamed would happen to you, but happened. They're light, they're momentary, and they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That's how you have to see life. That's how Jesus got through the cross. That's how you run the race. Keep your eyes fixed to the glory. Now, Jesus is the example of, of this. Oh, let me finish the verse here. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then he goes into chapter 5, the greatest passage on the anticipation of the glorified, imperishable, immortal body like Christ's body. Now, you know, we have these uh, positive uh, teachers on, on, on the television. And, uh, you know, your best life now and send me your money, you'll be really rich. Really, the Christian life is very positive. Not because of some technique, but because of what God has done for us. We have a great future. We have a great God. And there is eternal weight of glory which we share with the Lord Jesus Christ someday. With a new earth and a new heaven. Now, if that isn't positive, I don't know what is. Stop whining. Jesus is the supreme example. So he says here in verse 3, consider him. Now, you see that word consider? Uh, that means carefully calculate. Not a quick glance, carefully calculate. So if we had a lot of time, we would carefully calculate the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Okay, let's get practical now. How do you consider Jesus Christ? How do you fix your eyes on Jesus Christ? How do you actually do this? How does this get us through life looking to the joy that's set before us? All right, let me give you six ways, six ways. How do we carefully calculate the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the first way is what he told us himself the Lord's Supper. 
He told us, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember my cross. Remember my penal substitutionary atonement. Every time you take this bread and this wine, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, if it's for you, just uh, some uh, mechanical thing, some tradition you go through. I actually heard a man at the back of the auditorium of church go, oh, I don't want to go through that old tradition. My dear friends, this is a direct order of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows what he's talking about. We don't. And he wants us to remember his death. So whenever you take the Lord's Supper, focus your mind, discipline your mind to what this means. Jesus told us to do this because he wants us to look at his death as the core, the center of our Christian faith. Take the Lord's Supper very seriously. In my life, I may have missed on a Sunday the Lord's Supper two or three times. That's about all. What I have practiced and my wife has practiced the Lord's Supper every Sunday as part of worship with the brothers and sisters. Second, in scriptures. Well, scripture's God's book. It's Jesus' book. It's Jesus' biography. If you're going to fix your eyes on Jesus, you've got to read his book. You've got to read his biography. You've got to read his words, his teaching. It'd be very good if every day you just read a little in the Gospels, every day, like a paragraph or a story, every day, all four Gospels. When you're done, just go through it. And then your other Bible reading. But have to your Bible reading something about Jesus Christ from his Gospels. That's the only way you'll get to know Jesus Christ. You don't know Jesus Christ without his word. It's impossible. And you cannot grow as a Christian without the Bible. It's not possible. That's food. That's spiritual food. You can't live on air. You've got to have food. I'm sure you're glad about that. You cannot grow and run the race without the scriptures. This is the way we consider Jesus. This is how we know his will, his teaching, what he wants us to do, who he is, who we are, the scriptures. Then third, you might not expect this one, song, music. Music is very powerful. Did you know God sings? That's what the Bible says, God sings. You know the angels sing, and we will be in heaven someday. We will sing throughout eternity. Singing is an amazing thing. It, it touches a different part of the brain, different part of the emotions. In fact, it seems to me what I've read over the last number of years, we're only discovering more and more the power of music on the soul, on the mind, on certain parts of our emotion. So sometimes you're emotionally, let's be frank, a lot of times you don't want to read the Bible. You're busy, you've got so many things to do, stop and read the Bible. It's so hard to read anyway. And you don't want to sit and pray. Oh, so many things to pray about, I just don't want to pray. You're not in the mood to, to pray or read the Bible. Come on, tell me the truth. Don't, oh, not me. You know, so when you're not in the mood to read the scriptures or pray, put on good Christian music. It will turn your emotions around just like that. You're depressed, put good Christian music on. If you're a person you can sing, that's a wonderful thing. Sing. I have sung through many uh, hymn books as part of my devotion. 
So there, there was a man who was the head of a very large, I won't mention the name of the Christian missions organization, and he was under terrible criticism. Done some things, maybe not that good, but it wasn't that bad. But anyway, he just got belted with criticism publicly. So I asked him one day, I said, how in the world have you endured this criticism? Name dragged in public. He said, well, I do get very angry and I get very, very bitter. And I learned that when I start that going over it again and again in my mind, I just start singing as loud as I can. I know the great hymns. I just start singing and I sing until I feel I can control my brain and control the feelings I'm having. You see, music turns the emotions around. That's what music can do. So if you're not feeling spiritual, or actually to be spiritual by faith, if you're not feeling spiritual, then start singing. Start playing good Christian music, and it will get you and prepare your heart. That's what the book of Psalms is. It's the way we worship God. It's the way we are edified. And that's why when it's important when you come here, sing with all the gusto in you. Now, I did not sit in the back. I sat in the front. I couldn't see this. But I've been in churches, very large churches, six, 7,000. And I sit in the back before I speak because I want to get a look at the congregation. And in many of these congregations, no one's singing in the back. I mean, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people not singing. That's not right. If I was a song leader, I'd stop the whole thing and tell them, sing or you can leave right now. <laughs> That's why they don't ask me to be a song leader. <laughs> I figured that out. All right, our prayers, number four, our prayers. You know what prayer is? It's simply communion with God. And in this book of Hebrews, there's a lot about prayer. In this book of Hebrews, which we're looking at, there is an invitation. It's a beautiful invitation. In fact, I have it written across the top of my prayer book. Draw near. Draw near. God is saying that to us. Draw near. In the fourth chapter, he says, we can come to the throne of grace to a throne of grace to ask for grace at any time we have need. So God's inviting you. Come, come, pray. Come to my throne. And come with boldness. This whole age, this new age from Christ on, is the age of prayer. Jesus was a man of prayer. The disciples didn't know that at first, and they get up in the early morning. These are fishermen, so are you sure they get up early? When they got up early in the morning, they didn't find Jesus. Remember that? Mark chapter 1. Where's Jesus? Well, see, they didn't know him yet. They should have known. He's out praying. He had to meet with his father. He had to get guidance for the day. This is how we focus on Jesus, through prayer. It's an interesting thing about prayer. When you're praying, like if you hate someone's guts, there's someone you don't really like, they've hurt your feelings. When you pray, the Lord's going to deal with that. It's happened to me many times. And then as soon as I start praying for that person, I start changing my attitude. I'm sorry, Lord, I'm getting all mad about nothing. When you're praying, God speaks to you, and he, he, he deals with your sin often. There's a conviction. I, I wonder sometimes we don't want to pray because we know the Lord will speak to us and tell us, shape up. All right, prayers. Then, this is really a different one. Um, five. Spiritual conversations. So this is something that's come to my mind in the last maybe 10 years. I get invited. I actually get tired of it. Don't, this isn't recorded. I'll just deny it. 
Uh, I get invited to all these anniversary parties and birthday parties. After a while, I go, oh, no, not, not another party. So anyway, you go to these parties, and one party I went to was of a, a, a Christian leader of a huge Christian organization you all know, and it was a birthday party for his 60th birthday. That's where it really became obvious to me. All these Christians coming together, eating, playing games. You have to pray for the food, of course. Nothing spiritual. Nothing about the Lord. No conversation about the Lord. So, I don't know, maybe about five or six years ago, I, I was fed up with this. I just decided any party that I am going to, and they are not talking about the Lord, I'm just going to take over the party. I just decided. No, this is not a joke. I, did, I do this. So, everyone knows, so they don't invite me anymore. <laughs> so, let me give you an example. You go to a party. Here's a dear friend of mine. He's turning uh, 50 or whatever he's turning, and his wife has a big party for him. And a lot of friends, maybe 25 or 30 people over, and they're eating and eating and uh, joking, and all that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But nothing of the Lord. So, here's what I did at this friend's party. I just said, hey, let's all get together. And let's get in a big circle, and I want each of you to go around and share something about my dear friend Tim, something that he has touched your life for the Lord. And then I want you to share a verse or a blessing for him. And so everyone gathers around. We get in the big circle, and everyone shares a blessing, a verse, uh, a wish for him, and or says something he's done for him. Now, every time I've done this, Every time I've done this, people come up to me later and say, oh, I'm so glad you did that. That was the best part of the party, sharing the blessings, talking about his life, what he's done for others for the Lord. So they don't kick me out anymore. So there's no it's coming. So what happens when we get together as Christians or at lunch or someone's house? Well, there's normal conversation, nothing wrong with that. You want to talk about sports, or you want to talk about the weather, which is the, the most popular subject. That's fine. But you're a Christian. Take that time when you're with someone and make sure you turn it to the Lord. Tell them something you've been reading, studying, a book you're reading, or something. Share something of Christ. Turn your eyes to Christ. Running the race. I'm going to help you run the race. You help me run the race. Spiritual conversation at the supper table when you're with your buddies, you're on the golf course. Talk about the normal things. But then we're Christians. We turn it to the Lord. Teaching one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, we're all encouraging one another in the race. All right, the last one, the last one. In hearing the word preached, hearing the word preached. So it's right now, right here. You're experiencing it. You're sitting there. You're looking up here. You're fixing your eyes on the word of the Lord. It's on the Lord. And as you're fixing your eyes on the Lord through the preacher, you are helped in running the race. This is fixing your eyes on Christ. You're doing it right now. And that's why it's so important that you come and gather together to hear the word preached because the Lord speaks through that. That's his will, to speak. God is speaking to you right now. I know he is. He promises he will do that. The Holy Spirit's here. We're the temple of God. And the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now. That's another way we fix our eyes on Jesus. So here it is, six points. The Lord's Supper, take it seriously. The reading of the scriptures, singing the songs of the Lord, prayer, 
spiritual conversation and hearing the word preached. Run the race. This is how to run the race. Look ahead. Anticipate all that God has for you. If tomorrow you hear from the doctor, you've got cancer, you've got just a short time. I've experienced this with friends all my life. Good friends. They never thought they were going to get pancreatic cancer. George Verber just died two days ago from Operation Mobilization. Cancer. You don't know what tomorrow the doctor's going to tell you. Look, look through that. Yes, that's a very, that's a very uh, hard thing to take, and it's scary. But do what Jesus did. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We look through this, and we remember that it's only light. It's momentary, and it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The cancer. You lose your job. Lose your money. Any of these things can happen to a Christian. Christians live in a broken world. We're still broken people. Any of these things can happen. Shouldn't be shocked at anything. When one man lost all four of his children, he was asked, did you wonder why this happened to you? He said, no. Why shouldn't it happen to me? This is the world we live in. I'm not surprised. But for the joy, we're all going to meet again real soon. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let us pray. Our God, we are very grateful for these marvelous words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes on Christ. And for the joy set before him, we learn from Jesus to fix our eyes on the end goal and run towards that goal and stay in the race. It's your race. You've laid this out for us. It's life as you've prepared it for us. May we run with endurance the race that is set before us. In the name of our Lord, amen.